Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Oh, and a delicious one it is. You'll find me here every weekend sharing stimulating conversation and my best tips and tricks from experts and artisans alike to make every day delicious. You'll hear from chefs and pastry aficionados, restaurateurs, molecular gastronomers, food bloggers and enthusiasts, cookbook authors, wine geeks, TV chefs, beer experts. They're all here because we dish on fabulous food, wine and spirits, travel, health and living the best life. So I hope you won't miss a delicious conversation with me. You'll always find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Find me on social at Chef Jamie Gwen. And if you happen to have missed a show or would like to master a topic, you can find my podcasts with outlined show descriptions on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And so let the gastronomic inspiration begin. I love to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts to make you the best cook you know. And there's no doubt that summer is heating up and you're firing up the grill and you're seeing agua fresca everywhere. In fact, I went to my favorite a hole in the wall burger joint where yes, I like uh, caramelized onions and no mustard, uh, extra mayo. Oh, it's so good. And there was agua fresca being offered right near the soda station when you go to get your drink. And I just loved that because I love the ethnic influence. And I happen to love the freshness and the beauty of, in Spanish, what uh, is defined or uh, translated to fresh water. Agua fresca is all I want to drink during the hot months of summer. And in Mexico and all over Latin America, agua frescas are sold by the street vendors throughout the cities and the towns during spring and summer. And I love that you can make it custom at home. Typically, it's made with fruits and sometimes grains and seeds, but agua frescas always include water, sugar, and sometimes herbs and spices, but that's pretty much it. And I find them exceptionally thirst quenching and they're super simple to make and you can easily tweak a recipe to your liking by adding soda water and or alcohol like rum and or tequila. By the way, see the conversation? It's just getting better. So thanks to modern day globalization, you can find ready-made options anytime at the uh, Latin and Spanish grocery stores. It comes in bottled varieties and also instant mixes. But whipping up a batch for your home backyard barbecue is really easy. And it's a, a great way to take advantage of the bounty of budget-friendly fresh ingredients that you might find at your local farmer's market or at your favorite grocery store or at that um, produce market that you happen to go to where everything is ripe and fresh and inexpensive. So your creativity is really the limit when it comes to presenting 
your potion to party guests. Now, one of the most refreshing ways to enjoy summer fruit is in an agua fresca. So you always want to look for what is at the height of the season. And it's pureed fruit with water and a touch of sugar. And I like to add a little bit of lime juice and usually some sort of fresh herb from the garden. Now, um, where I live in Southern California, every taco stand worth its salt has a big jar or like three of brightly colored drinks standing by, um, agua frescas to match with the drippy, wonderful carnitas taco and, you know, thirst quenching pure fruit flavor to go um, with anything uh, heat or spicy off the salsa bar. And all you need to make a great agua fresca is a blender or a food processor to puree the fruit and then cheesecloth or a fine mesh sieve to strain the pulp. And from there, any ripe fruit is fair game. Now, if you play around with fruit and herb combinations, you'll find one you love the best, or uh, let me, allow me rather, to give you some suggestions. I make a mango agua fresca. It's really light. It has that beautiful essence of mango. It's free of um, any artificial sugar and it's really healthy. And in addition to mango, you can experiment with other flavors, which work really well with the other ingredients, strawberry, uh, watermelon, cantaloupe, even honeydew would work well here. And a watermelon agua fresca is probably uh, the, the fan favorite, I would say. All you do is start with one really ripe mango and even overripe fruit works well here. You um, take the peel off, you pit it, you cut it into chunks, you scrape all the goodness that you can get off the pit and you throw it into the blender with one and a half cups of cold water, a teaspoon or two, like the juice of half of a lime and a little bit of agave nectar, or you could use honey. I love the way that agave simply blends into an agua fresca because of its viscous and sort of free-flowing nature. And then I like to garnish a mango agua fresca with fresh mint leaves and another lime wedge. You could even throw in some of those mint leaves into the blender or you could cut it chiffonade or into thin strips that mint from the garden and throw it in after you've strained uh, the drink itself. Um, I like to chill it well before I serve it too. And oftentimes if you want to extend the agua fresca, you can serve it over ice. Now, speaking of watermelon, going back a step here, I make a watermelon lime agua fresca, and I often make that with a simple syrup. So that is a real sugar-based, and a simple syrup is very simply, as you know, because you make them often, right? If you are a mixologist, a cocktail aficionado, you have some sort of simple syrup behind the bar, and preferably one that you've made. I make my simple syrups in equal parts, one part sugar to one part water, which means one cup of sugar to one cup liquid measurement of water. I bring it to a simmer on top of the stove and I stir until the sugar dissolves. And then essentially I cool it down and I keep it in a squeeze bottle uh, in the fridge. It lasts longer that way. I'll often infuse it with flavor like you'll throw in a lavender sprig while you're dissolving the sugar over that low simmer and you have lavender simple syrup. Uh, you can make cinnamon simple syrup. Uh, you can make just about any simple syrup, really. 
rose petals from your garden that haven't been treated, a beautiful addition. Um, you can flavor um, with other fruit if you want to compound that fruit flavor. Um, spices, citrus, preferably done with the peel, let's say, of an orange or a tangerine. Uh, beautiful for a simple syrup. And that simple syrup, by the way, is a wonderful way to sweeten an agua fresca. So think watermelon lime. Think honeydew basil. Oh, yes. Uh, and if you're going to use that uh, fresh herbaceous garden addition, uh, you could maybe make a lemon basil simple syrup and really get a, an incredibly intense d compounding of flavors. Um, I do, as I mentioned, like to serve my agua fresca really cold or over ice. And oftentimes I'll spike it uh, with vodka or rum or even tequila, depending upon your spirit preference. And I have, of course, posted agua fresca recipes galore at chefjamie.com to keep you sipping in style this summer. So now that you have a drink, what will you eat? Oh, I know. If you know me, by the way, then you know that I plan lunch at breakfast and dinner at lunch, and that's just the way it goes. And if you are just the same, well, then this is your show. <laughs> okay, moving on. It's time for food news. Oh, and I do hope that you're making agua frescas all summer long. And by the way, I want to hear about it. So email me directly, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. Don't touch your dial because if you thought that initial conversation was scrumptious, oh, well, wait till you hear. We do have grand guests coming up this hour. We're going foraging next because Sarah Burr is here and she is a fruit forager. Wait till you hear about it. Also, we're talking dosas and oh, we're making dosa because the dosa truck is taking the country by storm. And before the end of the hour, we're going to improve your digestion. Dr. Julie Gatza is stopping by. And so all throughout this show, I'll feed your soul. Just don't touch your dial because there's more delicious conversation right after this. Because a meal is a terrible thing to waste, there's delicious conversation in your radio every weekend. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Sarah Burr forages on her walk back home from dropping her daughter off at school. Don't you love it? And foraging, she says, is a satisfyingly sustainable way of collecting food, of reconnecting to neighbors and to the natural environment. Statistically, half of the fruit that grows in yards and public spaces is never picked 
or eaten. What a shame. In her first cookbook release, The Fruit Forager's Companion, Sarah is dispensing advice on foraging etiquette and thoroughly breaking down methods of harvesting and storage and preservation from canning to fermentation. Sarah Burr is a chef, classically trained, a CIA grad, we share an alma mater, and a a very acclaimed writer. And so Sarah is here to dish, to encourage us to reconnect with nature, to reveal a new culinary world that is hiding in plain sight. And I am so glad to have you. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Jamie. I'm excited to chat with you. Well, thank you. Okay, uh, let's break it down. What constitutes foraging by definition? Well, and that's an excellent question. (laughs) Foraging is going out into the wild and getting food that was not formally cultivated. Um, But my definition of foraging is a little bit looser. I also include gleaning, which is when you utilize fruit that nobody else has harvested. Um, The the term itself goes back to going through fields and um, reclaiming wheat that that wasn't threshed. Hmm. But this is more about, um, gleaning would be more like if you had a lemon tree and you weren't picking the lemons. I knocked on your door and I said, Jamie... May I, may I pick some of those lemons? And so essentially, do you pay it forward? I mean, you're certainly reconnecting with uh, nature. You're connecting to your neighbors. And I think there needs to be more of that in the world. It makes for, uh, I believe, a, a more peaceful place. Um, but do you give back? Like if, if you pick lemons from my tree, uh, do you make me lemon herb salt from your book? Oh my goodness. I would definitely offer to share anything I had made with you. And you know what? If it wasn't to your liking, I'd probably come back later on with something I thought you would like. Right. Um, although the lemon herb salt, I, I have to say, is, is definitely really handy in a crowd pleaser. And it's a fantastic gift, especially since we always end up giving people sweet things. And sometimes that's not what people want. No, that's true. And and I'd like to talk about it. So let's pause from our foraging to whether you have an abundance of lemons from a tree or the farmer's market, or you acquired them from a neighbor. Um, that's a super simple go-to recipe that I love that you share because it's a great way to uh, quote unquote, use it up as well. And the wonderful thing as well about... Um, lemons that you may have gotten from someone's yard is that quite likely they are unsprayed, so you don't have to scrub them quite as much. And if you're going to be using the zest, the zest is going to be a lot more pesticide-free from from those neighborhood lemon trees. And very simply, you're combining the zest with freshly chopped herbs and a salt of choice. Um, Is it a sort of neutral kosher salt that's your preference? You know what? Yes, a slightly coarser salt. Coarser. is a better choice than a fine salt, like just a regular table salt. But otherwise, um, the salt of your preference. And the fantastic thing is this is a preserving recipe that's great for someone who has zero preserving skills. <laughs> it's self-stable. Um, it'll be good for up to a year. And it's, it's fantastic on so many different things. Yeah, uh, rosemary, thyme, mint, garlic, lemon, and salt. Uh, so easy, really. Um, okay, so you might ask a neighbor who has an uh, overwhelmingly wonderful lemon tree, but what if you're uh, more so out in the wild? How do you know if what you're foraging or picking is safe to eat? That is actually the best question of all. And there are a number of answers. So I can tell you what I do. Um, one of the things that I do is cross-reference different foraging guides. 
Um, so it's good to use one that's a newer edition because sometimes things change, especially with the things that are abundant or not, given that we have a lot more of some plants now than we used to. So you want to be looking at a current guide. Mm-hmm. Social media is really very handy. You can just take a picture of something and share it. Mm. But every now and then somebody will give you some information that is not correct. So that's a tool, but it's definitely not the final word. Uh, but it is quite handy. There are even foraging apps. So if you're taking your phone with you, you can look at one of these foraging apps. Sometimes there's, there are even ones where you can take a picture and it will identify it for you. Once again, this is something that I would recommend cross-referencing with something else. Um, the best thing is a, is a human expert. Yes. <laughs> so taking a foraging class or a workshop, I would say, is, is the, the best thing you can do. Yes. If there aren't any in your area, but you know somebody who's quite skilled at this sort of thing, just ask them. You know, you can take a picture and email it to them or ask if they'd like to go out with you sometime because you will end up learning so much. And even people who are experts can go out with someone else and learn something new every time. And that's what's so wonderful about this. I've, I've made all kinds of friends hmm. through my foraging practice, and every time they, they teach me something new. Yes, and I will say, it is a, a glorious expedition to to adventure out. I actually went out with a, a sh- group of chef friends in Los Angeles, in Southern California, where I live, and we foraged for mushrooms. And, you know, the chef, similar to you, had this extraordinary appreciation for nature and for um, the, the mushrooms that weren't being cultivated but could be um, searched out and sought out and found. And there's something to be said for how delicious they tasted sautéed on toast when we found them, picked them ourselves. It's, it's a, a day retreat, a venture that I do believe reconnects you. Oh, my goodness, so much. There's a, there's a very centering power about being removed from your typical space, whether it be your kitchen or your garden mm. um, or just a place you typically walk around. And, and looking at it in a new way, it's almost like you have this magical pair of glasses and you're noticing things that were there all along yes. that you, you never had any idea about. Thank you. I really think this is a, an extraordinary collection of recipes and inspiration, and you share it with wit and humor and beautiful prose to reconnect. And for anyone who loves food, the Fruit Foragers Companion will inspire you to head out into your local landscape, to have a, a newfound sense of curiosity, to build confidence, because Sarah Burr says that sweet, ripe treasures await you. The book offers fascinating entries on more than 40 fruits and 100 recipes for chutneys and soups and cordials and fools and more. And you can learn more about Sarah's foraging frenzy at sausagetarian.com and on social at Sarah Burr. I will keep the book close by, Sarah, on my walk uh, later this afternoon and let you know what I find. Well, Jamie, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Um, Thank you. And my pleasure. Thank you for sharing your passion. As the delicious conversation continues, the most passionate food and wine lovers listen here, so stay tuned. There's more delicious conversation in your radio right after this.
Satisfy your cravings and perfect your culinary skills just by tuning in. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The dosa, a light, crisp, lovely crepe made of rice and lentils, is eaten by millions of South Indians every day. Dosas are one of the world's great fermented foods, turning some of the humblest ingredients into an incredibly versatile delicacy. And the beloved street food is making its way into the global food scene, with great momentum, I will add, from a food truck in Vermont that started in 2014. Making dosas is Nash Patel and Lita Scheintaub's daily grind, literally, as the proprietors of the wonderfully successful food truck called Dosa Kitchen and the new release of their cookbook by the same name. Today, we are mastering India's favorite street food straight from Lita and Nash's Dosa Kitchen. And Lita, I'm so glad to have you on the radio. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Okay, you're a classically trained chef, uh, which I love, and you're spreading the gospel on dosas. So tell those of us who haven't been to your food truck what we're missing. As you mentioned, dosas are made from rice and lentils. So it's a, any kind of rice, white rice can work. Um, and the lentils are an Indian lentil called uradal, U-R-A-D-D-A-L. Mm-hmm. And we also use chana dal, which is a chickpea dal. Um, so we soak those for several hours, and then we grind them into a batter, and we ferment that batter. We put it 90-degree temperature is the optimal temperature for, for fermenting the batter. So mm-hmm. we put it in the oven with a viewing light on, mm-hmm. and then... Um, it, it rises. If it looks sort of like a after effects of a volcano, it's, you've successfully risen your batter. And, and you, you whisk it, and you refrigerate it, and then it's ready to be making doses on, on, the, on a griddle, on a pan. We, at our truck, we make them on a big griddle, so we make these very large, thin doses. That's the classic dosa. Um, they're 18 inches long. We also have a version that's the family-sized version. It's just 32 inches long. Amazing. And, yeah. And I love so that. It, it can, some people look at that and they say, oh, I can't make that at home. But there's another version called the Utapam, U-T-T-A-P-A-M. Uh-huh. And that's a thicker version of a dosa. And it's, it's a pancake and it's similar in thickness to a American-style pancake. So we suggest that people start small with a small Utapam and then as they get more skillful, they can try to make them thinner and thinner. I love the concept of this fermented batter. One, because we know the continued growing trend of anything fermented, fermentation being big. I happen to personally love the flavor. But I like the versatility of the batter. Like you talk about, it can be made in a thicker pancake style or a thinner crepe. And there's something very exciting Similar to the traditional American pancake, when the little bubbles start to form and you know that the flip is eminent, imminent, rather, uh, there's just something brilliant about it. So I'm very motivated to make dosa batter and to master the dosa. And I, I really like that it can be applied to savory and sweet and so many flavors, First and foremost, though, can you help us set up an Indian pantry? There were a couple of spices and seasonings in your, as you call it, dosa kitchen that I hadn't heard of before, uh, like asafoetida. Is that proper pronunciation? Yes. Okay. 
Is it essential for all of us? Because it sounds yummy. It's not a, the most essential spice. Um, it, this is also known as hing, H-I-N-G. Okay. And it adds an oniony taste. And there are some groups in India who don't eat onions. So that is really good in, in their style of cooking. But it also, it works in, in everybody's cooking. You, it smells really sulfury. But yes. then when you put it in oil, when you cook it in oil, it has a delicious oniony aroma. But if that's not available... You can just omit it in your recipes. And, and most of the, the spices that we use in the book are, a, a good number of them are available at a, a grocery store, mm-hmm. and all of them would be available at an Indian grocery store. And you make your own garam masala and then yeah. keep it in the pantry. And it has multiple uses as well. I love the flavor and I'm a big chickpea girl. So like I'll roast garbanzos and then season them with the garam masala or a spice and set them out as a cocktail snack. That's mm-hmm. my flavor profile. But you keep garam masala at all times. I mean, that's a great big batch recipe to make to have that spice blend on hand all the time. Yeah, it's nice to have it because you don't need a whole lot of it, too. Um, There's some some spices like turmeric and garam masala. I see a lot of recipes that use a lot of them, but they're really you don't really need to use a lot to make a statement with them. And the garam masala we usually put in toward the end of cooking. It just adds a little something Hmm. to finish it off. Yeah, that je ne sais quoi. Um, Okay, can you teach us, please, to make a classic dosa batter? Uh, Just virtually walk us through the steps so that we can master it. Any kind of white rice will do. A short grain, medium grain, uh, long grain. And then the uradal, which I mentioned before, we use a three-to-one ratio of uradal to, to rice and then a small amount of chana dal. And the exact proportions are, are in our, our book and, right. and the recipe is also on our website. So if, if people want to take a peek at that, they can look at dosakitchen.com and, and they'll see that because um, there are a bunch of details in it. Yes, but, but gener- generously shared for all of us to mm-hmm. have a weekend project. Okay. Okay. So three-to-one ratio. Um, so oh, two cups of white rice, uh, one cup or a dal, three tablespoons chana dal, and then half teaspoon fenugreek seeds. Mm-hmm. That adds a little flavor and helps with fermentation. Uh, about two and a half teaspoons salt. That comes later. Uh, so you soak the rice and you soak the dal in separate containers, and you cover it with water by about three inches, and set aside for four to eight hours to to uh, just to soak. And then we drain the rice and reserve the soaking water and separately drain the dal, and we discard the soaking water. Um, a lot of people, traditionally, they keep the dal water also, but we discard it because it, it contains some anti-nutrients that make it harder to digest. Oh, interesting. So we find it works with just the, the rice soaking water. Right. We put the rice in a blender and add half cup of the reserved rice soaking water, and you start blending on low speed. The rice mixture should be mostly smooth, but still just a little grainy. So when you rub a bit of the batter between two fingers, it will feel a little bit gritty. And it, it will be the consistency of a thick pancake batter. I think it's brilliant to see the visuals within the book, but to know that that using your you know best utensils, quote-unquote, uh, is, a, is a wonderful way to begin that fermentation process. And there's something... Um, just just brilliant about getting into the food. Yeah, it's a real 
organic yes. kind of feeling. Yes. And then you ferment the batter, as you talked about it, 90 degrees. So it has a fermentation yeah. process. Is the flavor itself fermented? Yeah, it's a kind of a sourdoughy flavor. Yes. It's, it's really deliciously sourdough. Mm. And the longer you ferment it and the longer you keep it, it keeps getting a little bit more fermenty. So the the flavor profile changes over time, which is really interesting. And the batter will keep for about a month in the refrigerator. Yes, and then you can make a pancake uh, or a wrap at any time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so it takes the same amount of time as making a pancake, basically. Mm -hmm. If you have the batter ready, you can get up in the morning and make a dosa, crack an egg on it, cover it, and you have an egg dosa for breakfast. Oh, fabulous. Okay, so that's breakfast. What's for lunch? Can we make masala dosas, the Indian spice mashed potato that you make? I love all the fillings and all the sauces. All the options there um, are what I'm all about. Masala dosa, that's the, the Indian spice mashed potatoes, and that's the classic dosa. That's synonymous with dosa in, in South India. Mm. When you go out for breakfast, that's your choice of dosa. Yes. And there's street stands all over that, that have masala dosa. And uh, it's served with, classically it's served with three chutneys, two or three chutneys, um, coconut chutney and a green coconut chutney, tomato chutney, mm. and um, sambar, which is a, a lentil, kind of a loose lentil stew that you, you dip the dosas into um, with a lot of ingredients, um, dal and a bunch of spices and vegetables. It is the brainchild food truck of two uh, true foodies, Nash Patel and Lita Scheintaub, and they are co-owners of Dosa Kitchen. Next time you are in um, Brattleboro, Vermont, you must check it out. And in the interim, you can master dosas at home with the new cookbook release entitled Dosa kitchen, the Indian street food that is going to take the world by storm. You can learn more and find the shared recipe at dosakitchen.com and follow on social uh, the culinary escapades of Nash and Lita at Dosa Kitchen. Thank you again, Lita, so much. Thank you. As we continue to master uh, culinary methods and uh, find gastronomic pleasure in all great things. There is more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Living the best life every weekend in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen here to feed your soul. We've all heard the adage, you are what you eat. Wrong, by the way, says nutritional educator Dr. Julie Gatza, co-founder of the Florida Wellness Institute. The truth is, you are what you absorb. Dr. Julie says, just because we pile our plates with healthy foods, there's no reason to assume that your body is 
also going to be healthy unless you break down those foods into micronutrient particles that can be absorbed into your circulatory system. So are you absorbing the good stuff from what you eat? Dr. Julie Gatza is one of the nation's top chiropractic physicians with more than 25 years of clinical practice. And Dr. Julie's mission is to enhance your body's potential to heal itself. So by the end of this conversation, you should be feeling better and eating better. And I am very glad to have you here. Thanks. Good. Yes. Grateful to have you. Uh, okay. I find this fascinating, this concept, um, and one that you can uh, definitely school us on. You lecture on eating food versus unfood. Can you tell us what you mean? Just uh, imagine a picture of a piece of fish. Okay. It has healthy fats, proteins, minerals, enzymes. It is everything that the body actually needs to utilize it, and, uh, and be healthy. Put that up against a box of french fries. Unhealthy fats, no minerals, no protein. Uh, it actually takes nutrition from you to try to break it down. That's what I call unfood. So there are many people who are filling themselves with unfood, which is mass that's filling up their digestive system and their stomachs, mm -hmm. and they think that they're full from you know, eating well, and they're really just putting in something very empty, such as unfood, children included. Okay, so on average, what percentage of the food we eat each day is actually wasted because there are no nutrients being absorbed? 70%. Oh my gosh. So this is where people are, you know, looking for answers. They don't feel good. They're looking at the doctors and they're looking for answers, and they keep thinking they need the next best doctor. And truly, it's 70% of what they're eating isn't getting absorbed. So the fact is, it lies in digestion. I don't care what health problem you've got. Fix the digestive system, and you've got a chance. Okay, so how do you fix the digestive system? You talk about digestive enzymes. That's not something that you naturally find in food, but something that you need to make the effort to take, essentially, like a supplement, right, to assist in gaining the most out of what we put in our bodies? In general, yes, but we do make digestive enzymes. It's just our food source has changed, uh, the way it's prepared has changed, right. our country's changed, mm -hmm. we're no longer eating like our grandparents. Uh, we don't keep in the same traditions like the ethnicities, such as like eating uh, sauerkraut in Germany because it helps in aid in digestion and kimchi and turmeric in different cultures. So these things aren't aiding our digestion. So we're putting in a bunch of food of all different sorts, piling in probably too much in general, and we are not making the digestive enzymes that we need to. So one of the first things I've ever done with patients is I fix digestion even if they're complaining about swollen hands. Because if you get them the enzymes that they need, they then can actually break down the foods they are eating to heal themselves. So if you have a toxic body, can you elaborate on how to better the digestive tract? One of the things that I've uh, proposed for years and years, no one likes when I say this, is no coffee, tea, and pop if you're not feeling good. The fact is they inhibit how you absorb, so you cannot get the nutrients in properly because they basically put up a wall to how you can get the absorption. Are there certain uh, or common rather other foods like coffee, tea, pop that you talk about that have the greatest negative impact on yes. digestion? Yeah, biggest that I've seen over 27 years is wheat, 
and dairy. Yes. Chocolate, corn, um, often <laughs> potatoes. We used to be friends, but you just named all my favorite foods. I know. I'm sorry. I do it to everyone. They all think I'm great until I give them the real skinny. And here's the deal. You do it for one week. One Eliminate week. Eliminate everything I just talked about. Eliminate the grains. And here's what you should eat. Lots of protein. Mm-hmm. Lots of steamed green vegetables. Not a bunch of salads in the beginning. And, um, and very, very little, well, basically, no grains. No Tons grains. Water. And watch. You'll dump a couple of pounds of inflammation. You'll start to feel better. You're, you won't wake up so tired. You'll sleep a little better. Hmm. Just one week. Then go eat what you want and see how you feel. You'll believe me. It is a, a really a fascinating lesson in digestive enzymes and understanding how the body works. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Julie Gatz's research, how she treats her patients, uh, all about how you can really truly absorb what you eat in the best way possible and the enzymes that she believes we should all be living on, uh, children and adults alike, um, you can, of course, research her, Dr. Julie Gatza, G-A-T-Z-A, and you can learn more at Nature Sources, Nature's with an S, nature's right? Nature's Sources. Nature's We're going to be eating well and living well because of you, Dr. Julie. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Jamie. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of culinary entertainment. I do hope that I satiated your appetite and fed your soul and that you'll meet me here next weekend for more fabulous inspiration. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour because you know, as you've heard me say before, that if you stock your kitchen smartly, you can whip up just about anything at any time. And I know you're firing up the grill this weekend. I just know it because summer has started. My last bite recipe for this week is what I call cast iron ricotta with grilled grapes. And it is a delectable three ingredient creation. If you keep ricotta cheese, which happens to have a really extended shelf life in your fridge at all times, and you pick up a loaf of French bread at the start of the weekend, you have a party in the making in my book. What I do is I simply spoon the ricotta into a cast iron pan. I season it with, liberally by the way, salt and pepper, and I drizzle really good quality olive oil over the top. And I place the cast iron pan on my hot barbecue and I wait for it to bubble. And then I grill some grapes in clusters left on the vine, because if you've never had a grilled grape before, oh, they're amazing. Add them to your cheese board, your charcuterie platter, and more. And I serve the hot, delicious, bubbling cheese with the grilled grapes and bread or crackers for dipping, and it really is delectable. I will recap the recipe on social, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'll meet you here next Sunday in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.